Pillow, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast produced by the ABA's Section on Dispute Resolution, where we talk to members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin, and this week I'll be talking with Danny McFadden. Danny has been a director of the Center for Effective Dispute Resolution, or CEDAR for short, since 2004, and he currently serves as the managing director of Cedar Asia Pacific in Hong Kong. Danny has mediated in both English and Mandarin Chinese for over 20 years. Good morning, Danny, and welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Adam. Uh, Good to speak with you. Uh, So, Danny, we're here to talk about the Singapore Convention, um, which was signed, uh, I believe, um, a few months ago in August. Um, but before we get into that, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your background. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about how you got started out? I believe you started your career as a business person, and then you got into the practice of law and ADR after that. But could you um, elaborate on how you came to be an ADR practitioner? Yeah, that's, uh, thanks, Adam. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's correct. Um, like a lot of people that I meet in the uh, mediation area, many of us find our way into mediation by kind of an accident. And uh, it happened to me in the way that I I was a commercial lawyer in Brisbane, in Australia. I was going to uh, look to see for opportunities to practice law in the UK where I'm on the um, role of solicitors. Uh, And at that time, uh, I was introduced to CEDA um, in London. I'd always had a great interest in the dispute resolution side of the law, Um, basically coming from, I think, my background as a business person, looking at deals rather than uh, litigation. And I was introduced to CEDA and it kind of took off from there. So it was a rather sideways um, way of coming in uh, to this field. And it's been, uh, been very lucky. It's been, I've been able to work in the area for the last uh, 20 years or so. And could you tell me a little bit more about your current role with CEDAR? Um, is that more of a management role or do you actively mediate with CEDAR? Yeah, I'm an active uh, professional mediator in Hong Kong. I do many different kinds of disputes, primarily working in the commercial area. Uh, so a whole range of things. As you already mentioned, I speak Mandarin Chinese. So quite often these days, uh, one or both parties uh, would be Chinese speaking, uh, which is something that is developing uh, a pace during the last uh, several years, especially with China's expansion and Belt and Road and all those other things that are happening. Um, I also uh, represent CEDA in Hong Kong. And we do things in Hong Kong, like working with the Department of Justice. We've just completed, CEDA has just completed some training with ICSID uh, in investor state uh, mediation training. We've just uh, completed that uh, last month in Hong Kong. Next year, we'll be doing more training here. But based in Hong Kong, um, it allows me to work in different countries in the region. I work in Japan. I teach at Kobe University. Uh, We're doing mediation training in Japan. Next year, we're set up to do quite a bit of training also in Mandarin and English in in China. Um, The other side to what I do in Hong Kong, and it's quite a 
an important uh, part of what I do here is I'm the regional mediator for the World Bank Group. Uh, last night, for example, we had a conference call with all the um, worldwide group of mediators associated with the World Bank, uh, just talking about what our program is going to be for 2020. Um, that means that I'm responsible for nine countries in this region, and that's what, another reason why Hong Kong is such a great location. It allows me to be anywhere within three or four hours. And so I mediate cases for the World Bank. They're workplace cases. They're not my usual commercial cases. Uh, and I also do quite a bit of training for the World Bank, including things like being an unconscious bias trainer. Well, Denny, that's quite an impressive background. And I, I don't think there are a lot of people better suited to talk about uh, cross-border mediation. And... Um, there was a kind of a watershed event a few months ago. I think it was on August 7th um, in, in international mediation. Um, and that was the signing of the United Nations Convention on International Settlement Agreements resulting from mediation. But I think it's colloquially known as the Singapore Convention. And, and my understanding is that this convention was, uh, the purpose of it is to in, facilitate the enforcement of settlement agreements arising from international mediation. So on, on that topic, can you tell me a little bit about the origin of the Singapore Convention? Um, when did it first, um, I, I guess, when was it first contemplated and how long has it kind of been in development? Well, in terms of uh, how long it's been con contemplated, I've been, uh, there's been talk about the uh, mediation community getting its own uh, version of the of arbitrations New York Convention that's been spoken about at conferences, especially in Asia, uh, for many years now. It's seemed like a kind of a, a distant dream in those days, and not everyone was for it. But certainly, it's been a subject for or a topic that's been discussed at various uh, forums over, over many years now. Um, but really, in, in terms of when it started to be developed, was uh, the convention was proposed by the United States. And so about five years ago now, the uh, UNCTRAL, that's the United Nations Commission on International Trade, um, began to look at ways to enhance enforcement. And therefore, um, one of the avenues to, that was decided to walk down was to look at having a convention the same as or similar to the Arbitration Wells New York Convention. And in fact, the Singapore Convention took the New York Convention, uh, Arbitration Convention, as a kind of its, its base model. Um, the UN then uh, certainly got behind it. It recognized the value of mediation in settling disputes in an international contact, context and also uh, it believed that the adoption of the convention would be acceptable to states with different legal systems and an overall as part of its, its overall policy to contribute to the development of, of a more harmonious international economic relations. Um, so uh, as you've already mentioned, there was uh, a very important signing ceremony in August this year, 46 states signed. I believe that's now up to 51. Uh, that's a very good start. High expectations, people saying this could be a 
game changer for mediation. Uh, so a lot of expectation. I think that one of the things, Adam, that's come through really is, uh, and I, I think taking money by surprise is just how quickly this has become a reality from an idea that was floating around, say, six or seven years ago, uh, from the beginning of the development of the convention up to today. In terms of treaty development, it's been very, very short. So I think that's it's really exciting. Um, and we, we're all looking forward to seeing where this can be taken forward. Um, pretty heavy hitters signed up, the United States and China. Right, and I think there are some other um, large countries, I think Korea and um, yeah. India are some of the notable ones. And there are, I think, several uh, South American countries that have already signed as well. Yes. So we've talked a little bit about countries that have signed, and we'll get more into uh, you know, maybe some omissions there. But I, in doing this podcast, Danny, I always end up asking kind of the dumb question to, to set up the discussion. But why is there a need for a treaty like the Singapore Convention? Yeah, well, I think it's it's a very good question to to ask, as mediators would say, a very good opening question. <laughs> well, I mean, some I think it's also a question to ask is well, what problem is the Singapore Convention trying to solve? And it depends on your jurisdiction and the line of dispute resolution you're involved in. Well, and it's simply because in, in countries like the US, UK, Australia, non-compliance with a mediation settlement agreement, and I'm talking about primarily domestic cases, uh, is really a problem. And it's not because there is or isn't an enforcement regime. It's because the parties reach a negotiated settlement voluntarily. They feel, for those people listening who haven't been, been involved in commercial mediation, uh, the parties, they, they, they feel that they've spent time and money in a tough, uh, hopefully a good faith negotiation. They arrive at a solution that both parties can claim ownership of and live with commercially. So it's based on uh, deal making rather than uh, focusing on the, the legal issues. So it's, it's commercial entities uh, working out a deal and they feel uh, ownership of it. So uh, if you ask... Me, for example, uh, is it something I'm concerned about when I act as a mediator in, in cases, even international cases, the answer would be no. And many of my colleagues in the field would say, well, actually, they really, really hear of someone not honoring the agreement after the mediation. However, that may be my experience and the case in uh places like, like the US and the UK. But in, in some jurisdictions, enforcement can be much more complex. Uh, one problem is parties may agree to, to mediation and, and court proceedings in one jurisdiction, but the mediation settlement agreement may need to be enforced in another country where, for example, assets, assets are located. So this can be a disadvantage because in the absence of a universally recognized enforcement mechanism, the agreement is not internationally binding. It is binding as a contract, but then you have to uh, treat it as a breach of contract in the normal, in normal, normal situation. Um, so another problem is, uh, and this is something I've encountered very much in Asia for many years, where parties experience or they fear non-compliance with mediation settlements, 
there's very little faith in an agreement which can only be enforced as, as a new contract. Uh, so this is something that Asian parties raise uh, quite often. They fear basically that, and it's quite legitimate fear I think, they fear that mediation is only going to add extra costs and could be used as a delaying tactic by the other side. So in countries like Japan, China and Korea, uh, a judicial confirmation of the enforceability of the mediation settlement agreement uh, I think is going to be highly valued. And some commentators have said that some of the strengths of the convention uh, are going to be that the convention lends mediation the regulatory legitimacy needed to become a major player in international disputes and also just having uh, the existence of a global enforcement regime go a long way to uh, reassuring parties, especially in Asia, who've never used mediation or are less familiar with the process, that it's a reliable dispute resolution option which courts around the world will recognize. So, uh, yeah, so there, um, I think there is a, a good case for it. However, having said that, uh, as a practicing mediator in the international area, it's not something previously that has been a great concern, but it will be a concern. Uh, it will certainly offer comfort, I, I think, in uh, places like Japan, where international mediation is only getting a foothold. And so talking about this enforcement regime, let's get into some of the more uh, concrete or formal uh, aspects of the convention. So I guess the most obvious question, to me at least, is how does the convention define mediation? What is mediation under the Singapore Convention? Yeah, well, uh, the definition of mediation is, is defined very broadly, uh, which I think uh, is an excellent uh, way to approach this. That allows for the fact that there are differences in mediation models worldwide. Perhaps I'll read out the definition. It's a very short one, a very simple one. The convention defines mediation as a process, irrespective of the expression used or the basis upon which the process is carried out, whereby parties attempt to reach an amicable settlement of their dispute with the assistance of a third party or persons, the mediator, lacking the authority to impose a solution upon the parties to the dispute. And some really important part, it's very, as you can see, it's very broad. It allows, it, when it's saying very clearly that irrespective of the expression used, this gets around the potential problem that in different jurisdictions, they may call what I would describe as a mediation process, mediation, give it the name mediation in one jurisdiction, whereas in another it might be called conciliation or something else. So that gets around uh, that, you know, that debating about whether it's conciliation, mediation, whatever it is. I think that that's very clever. And also in the, especially in Asia, uh, it also says that basically the mediator lacks authority to impose a solution upon the parties. So that gets us around the different models of mediation. Primarily in Hong Kong, for example, we use a very tough, but uh, still a facilitative model uh, rather than an evaluative model. An evaluative 
a, a, um, a hardcore evaluative model is basically where the mediator gives an opinion or tells the parties what to do. In Asia, you could very much uh, traditionally and parties' expectations are that the mediator would be far more um, willing to tell them what to do. And this is uh, goes back to kind of a traditional model in Asia. Um, whereas the more Western model, the if you look at Riskin's grid, which is talking about the levels of intervention a mediation a mediator might make, uh, most mediators will use a whole range of techniques, but most uh, will draw short of actually saying who's right and who's wrong. So this definition actually uh, allows for these different models to uh, come under the same definition. So I, I think the, the broadness of the mediation definition uh, hopefully will uh, and enable us to cover all the different jurisdictions and whatever you call it, whatever model that's going to be used, it will be captured by, by, by the convention. I think it's also worth noting that unlike arbitration, there's, there's no requirement for a seat. So this allows parties to self-regulate using the laws and rules that they've chosen themselves. Um, uh, we're hopeful that this is going to promote party autonomy and and greater flexibility. So uh, uh, over, overall, I, I think uh, a lot of work has gone into the thinking around the definition and uh, leaving it as broad as possible is, is a positive. Right, you're absolutely right that the, the broadness of that definition accounts um, not only for differences in kind of the form of mediation used, but also for a lot of cultural differences. Um, which obviously is essential in an international agreement. Um, but I, the one thing you said um, that the Singapore Convention doesn't require a seat re reminds me. Um, so how does, I know there's some outstanding issues on this under the New York Convention, but how does the Singapore Convention define what's, um, what isn't international mediation? Well, the, uh, the, the, Basically, uh, the requirement, for, uh, the formal requirement um, to, for uh, a case to come under the Singapore Convention, uh, Singapore Convention Agreement is basically it, it needs to be concluded in writing and it applies to international settlement agreements resulting from mediation uh, and it's considered international if either at least two parties to the settlement agreement have their places of business in different countries or the country, and that allows it to say at least two parties because there can be many disputes in a multi-party. You can have, I've mediated cases where there have been six or seven parties from three or four countries. So what it's saying is that it's international if at least two parties to the settlement agreement have their places of business in different countries or the country to which the settlement agreement is closely connected to. Um, or to be performed as different from the respective uh, parties' places business. Uh, I, I don't think we're um, potentially being optimistic, but I don't think it would be too difficult to decide whether the, for a lawyer, for example, or parties to, to work out whether their case is international and comes under the convention. Uh, you know, they're closely connected to. Um, this is very familiar ground in terms of uh, you know tax law and and, and other and other areas so I, I 
you know, identifying whether your case is international, uh, and as long as it's con concluded in writing, we'll bring it under the convention, I believe. So one of the, the predominant purpose, I think, of the Singapore Convention is to facilitate the enforcement of um, mediated settlement agreements. So what does enforcement of a mediated settlement agreement look like under the Singapore Convention? Is there a specific process um, or are there you know, set parameters? Is there guidance in the Singapore Convention itself? Well, um what does enforcement look like? Um, well, the, actually, the convention doesn't prescribe the mode of enforcement. Uh, I think it follows from this kind of ethos of keeping things flexible. It leaves it to each contracting state um, to work out what the um, enforcement is going to look like in accordance with its own rules of procedure and under the conditions laid down in, in the convention. It's remains to be seen how national uh, courts will res respond to this. Um, if, for example, the agreements are inconsistent with their d domestic practices in the, in the enforcement state, um, and perhaps later we can talk about how uh, they might try to set up a legal mechanism domestically to handle enforcement cases in, in, in the future. Um, but it's left to the individual states at this point to work out their own mode of enforcement. And kind of following up on that, are there any express exclusions or exemptions for enforcement uh, or grounds where a jurisdiction can refuse to enforce uh, an agreement at the convention? Yeah, they've, um, the convention excludes settlement agreements which have been either concluded or approved in, in, in a course of a, of a court proceeding or they're, and, and they're enforceable uh, as a judgment or they're enforceable uh, uh, as an arbitral award. Uh, and this to me seems quite simple and I think this is really to prevent parties from having two bites of the cherry or two bites of the apple, um, being having a uh, settlement in one area and then being uh, dissatisfied with it and trying again somewhere else. So I think it's, it's fairly common sense, uh, you know, not to confuse the different processes by uh, not allowing, exclude, excluding settlement agreements in, in, that have already been concluded in, in other forums. And I, I believe that there is also a public policy um, exemption under the convention as well, which may lead to some um, debate over what that exactly means. But sure, yes. So I guess the so I guess one of the main procedural or practical questions is: um, Is the Singapore Convention currently effective? And if not, uh, when does it go into effect? Uh, well, the, but basically the convention will enter into force six months after three states have acceded or, or ratified the convention. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, so I'm not quite <laughs> sure what, when that will be, but coming up to the holiday period, I don't think that's going to happen uh, anytime this year, um, but who knows. Uh, so uh, I think we're hopeful that 
this will happen uh, next year at some point. Um, I'm sure um, that amongst the 51 already and more to come that there will be uh, ratification. Absolutely. And I, th I think there are a lot of, overall, there are a lot of upsides and it's, um, I, I think most people that I've um, seen write about it or spoken to are very optimistic. Um, but that being said, there are some, I think, outstanding concerns or um, issues that would need to be resolved. I, I think one of the glaring concerns regarding the Singapore Convention is that so far no um, EU country um, has signed or adopted the Singapore Convention. I think some people have concerns over that. Yeah, well, the, the, the UK uh, and the European Union uh, haven't signed yet. Um, the, dur during the signing ceremony of, as part of, the, of that week of, uh, of celebration in, in Singapore, the, um, the Singapore Minister for Law explained that the reason for the uh, EU not signing was because the EU needs to determine whether it has to sign the treaty as a whole or if its member states should, uh, should sign it individually. Um, I think, uh, you know, initially from my understanding of the, uh, the drafting history, the EU uh, initially was in favor of a, of a kind of a softer instrument that they didn't um, wish to go initially uh, to having a treaty or a full convention um, but but later, and and I'm, I have certain knowledge that the EU did participate really fully in the uh, convention drafting meetings. I think overall the EU uh, is definitely supportive of mediation. For example, the uh, EU mediation directive was introduced uh, some years ago now, which is uh, focusing on encouraging um, using mediation in, in cross-border consumer disputes. So. The support for mediation, I think, is definitely there. Um, in terms of the UK, well, um, <laughs> we'll have to see what happens in the UK in the election in the next 24 hours in terms of the ongoing Brexit discussions. Uh, I don't think uh, it's foremost in the UK's mind at the moment <laughs> as to whether or not uh, it should sign the convention. But uh, well, we, 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 they might conflate into one. If uh, the EU stays, if there is no Brexit, then uh, the EU will decide for for all of uh, for the UK as well. But uh, uh, it, it is important. I think the my sense is, and from what my colleagues tell me in the area, the EU's and my European colleagues, the EU is definitely going to come come on board. And and yet again, it, obviously, it's not going to happen in the, in this year. It's going to be something that they hopefully will address their minds to next year. In addition to uh, concerns about countries that have yet to um, sign or adopt the Singapore Convention, I think there are some outstanding issues with um, jurisdictions that have adopted, uh, specifically with jurisdictions um, where mediation isn't really fully integrated into the domestic legal system. And there may be some um, concerns that the Singapore Convention would lose efficacy there or there would be some difficulties in uh, adopting a system of enforcement for mediation. Yeah, well, I, I think for, uh, well, for any country uh, in this situation, it's not simply it's not enough simply to sign the convention. 
uh, assigning state would require a, as you pointed out, a, a supporting legal platform to implement it. Um, so if a state had no domestic equivalent framework for regulating mediation or enforcing mediated settlement agreements within their legal system, um, they could, one potential way to deal with this is they could adopt UNCTRAL's model law on international commercial mediation and international settlement agreements resulting from mediation, um, let's just call it the model law, as the legal basis uh, for their domestic mediation. The model law uh, was developed by UNCTRAL's working group number two, simultaneously with the convention in order to address this issue, in order to uh, specify the procedural requirements for mediation. So in effect, uh, it could, can be used as an off-the-shelf act, which uh, could serve as the domestic legal platform for the operation of mediation and the enforcement of, of, of disputes. Um, and I think the, in the arbitration area, the, uh, the, the model law on, uh, on arbitration, the unstructured model law on arbitration has in many countries, and I know from experience in Vietnam, for example, uh, to develop their arbitration uh, legal framework, they just used Antitol's model uh, arbitrate model arbitration law as the basis and hopefully um, the model law and mediation can be used in the same way and, and 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 it should make things easy for countries to pass a domestic if they want to uh, you know buy this kind of off-the-shelf um, basic platform uh, to pass and then develop it within their tradition and their their own legal framework um, to pass a domestic framework, you know to support the convention quite quickly so um, I think it's it's a it's a great initiative of the working group to uh, not only develop and draft the convention, but also to uh, produce a model law at the same time. Um, I actually had a, a conversation about this topic with a colleague of mine, and uh, he said, "Well, the United States doesn't really even have um, that kind of." domestic legal structure to enforce it. Um, yeah. but I think California actually has a, a not a dissimilar um, statute and system for enforcements. Yeah, well, I, I've read there's an, uh, yeah, so I, I, I've read in terms of the United States, I've, um, there's an ABA um, paper out at the moment. Um, that I must confess, I haven't, uh, don't recall everything quite to memory, but it does talk about the fact that the, for instance, the New York Convention in the US um, hasn't needed uh, enforcement of arbitration laws in the US, hasn't needed, uh, you know, to line up specific domestic legislation for enforcement that it's, I forget the phrase used, but it's been um, able to just simply uh, use and enforce arbitration awards in the US uh, without having to look at changing or, or altering. It's, uh, you know, and, and America's so big, different uh, states haven't needed to adjust their, their domestic uh, legislation or, or laws. So I guess an, another issue that may arise related to enforcement is um, kind of the grounds to for a jurisdiction to refuse enforcement. And 
I, I believe it's section, it's article five, section one E. Um, just one example that stood out to me is it allows a, a, a court of a competent jurisdiction to refuse um, enforcement of a Singapore convention agreement if they're, and I'm quoting, there was a serious breach by the mediator of standards applicable to the mediator or the mediation, without which breach that party would not have entered into the settlement agreement. And to me, that is, it, it could be brought enough to result in litigation around enforcement, arguing over what a serious breach means or over what standards are applicable, um, whether or not a party actually would have entered into the settlement agreement were it not for the breach. Um, do you think there's a concern that uh, language like that might um, result in some challenges to um, mediated settlement awards under the convention. Yeah, um, you're referring to, as you said, to Article 5e, looking at a serious breach of mediator standards. Um, so it's potentially a successful challenge on the grounds that has been, been a serious breach um, by the mediator of standards, standards applicable to the mediator, you know, it, it could result in the settlement agreement not being enforced. On a country but by country basis, generally uh, accepted mediator standards do exist. For, for example, the US has the uh, Uniform Mediation Act model standards of, for mediators, for, of the conduct of mediators. They've been adap adapted by the, uh, the ABA, AAA. In the UK, um, courts would likely look to the mediator standards, code of conduct of the Center for Effective <clears throat> Dispute Resolution, CEDA, which is the leading authoritative um, mediation organization in, in the UK. Um, however, there, there's definitely a, a problem, Adam, because um, you know, what does, uh, internationally, what, what are these standards we're talking about? You know, the problem is that they're, they're internationally, they're, there is no collective agreement as to what mediation standards are. IMI um, have worked at this, but IMI is not uh, you know, accepted uh, globally yet. Uh, and this, uh, as you pointed out, it, it could pave the way for legal arguments about standards. Uh, also, the convention doesn't define what constitutes a serious breach of standards. However, if you, if you look at the uh, clause again, it, it's saying, well, it seems to be saying that even if there's a serious breach, it would still uh, have to be shown that but for, a kind of a but for, second leg uh, to the argument that um, but for without the breach the party would not have entered into the settlement agreement i mean <laughs> it's a little bit disturbing that uh, there could be a serious breach of standards um, which i think everyone would be um, quite horrified at and yet at the same time um, that that wouldn't be enough to successfully challenge uh, the <clears throat> the um, enforcement and right, and I think that is kind of the bigger concern is not that um, an allegedly serious breach may result yeah. in um, uh, vacating, if you will, of the agreement, um, but rather it will kind of defeat the purpose of the Singapore Convention by requiring all this litiga litigation to uh, affect the agreement. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the concern when we talk about um, challenges to the enforcement and uh, provisions that may lead to challenges. Um, so Danny, I know that you um, 
fairly recently handled a, a multinational corporate dispute um, that also happened to be a, a, a family law case at its at its core in a way. Um, and the Singapore Convention, I understand, um, excludes family-related mediations. Um, so do you think that type of interplay between family-owned um, corporate disputes uh, may be a gap in the Singapore Convention? Um, I'm not sure whether it's so much a gap, but certainly it's an area that may need uh, to be explored uh, in the future. Um, the exclusions, uh, you know, they apply the, uh, to settlement agreements concluded for, so it's personal, family, household purposes, or relating to family inheritance or, or employment. Well, I get the bit about employment, but just a couple of areas, um, family and inheritance, um, as I think it's uh, predominantly worldwide, most even large conglomerates start life as as a family business, um, not just in Asia, but primarily in Asia, whether it's in Korea, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, the very substantial commercial entity will have started life or is still run by family members. So uh, when I'm mediating uh, in those type of matters, uh, there are, you know, I did a case where the uh, we, the amount in dispute was hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars. Uh, we had 16 or 17 lawyers flying from the the U.S. Uh, we held the mediation here in Hong Kong. Um, there was a lot of uh, because it is a conglomerate and a huge family business. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of argument about did someone breach fiduciary duties as a director and all that kind of good stuff. But at the heart, it's, it's uh, basically an argument between four or five family members as to the, the division of the, of the conglomerate. Uh, it usually happens when dad gets older or matriarchs get older uh, and or some uh, event happens that triggers the next generation wanting to take control from the the previous generation so um, saying well this is uh, on the paper in the court case when you look at the court documents there'll be boxes of court documents um, focusing on the legal issues that have emerged around their dispute but really in terms of mediation it's about five or six family medias uh, uh, members getting them around the table and sorting out a family dispute uh, so there's that kind of crossover, and especially in inheritance too. I think this is uh, this is where the family knives tend to come out uh, when when there's a whole heap of money um, that they fear is going to go to one or the others, uh, and and it can be fighting over company assets and lots of um, legal arguments and and lawyers making the case for different family members. But it's really a family dispute. So it will it's going to be interesting to see how how this works out in the future. So Danny, in the time that we have left, I'd, I'd like to talk about some of the practical effects for parties that may be considering uh, mediation for international disputes um, in the future when the Singapore Convention is in force. So the big question to me is, if there is a party who is hesitant about mediating an international disagreement or including a, a mediation clause in a 
an international contract, should those parties be more willing or encouraged to to go to mediation for that type of dispute? Well, um, you know, I, I think I, I, if they're considering mediation, I, I think ab- absolutely if they haven't uh, already tried mediation. Um, I mean, I mean, the first thing to remember is they 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 may actually for parties who haven't have never or reluctance in the past or who haven't tried mediation, I would say, go ahead and try it because it really does work. Um, and they may actually find that the enforcement, uh, ne- there's no need to enforce the settlement agreement, which is the, usually the case um, in any case. Um, but I think you, I would say to them or their lawyers that when the convention does come into force, it should give comfort to parties who, who may just need that extra um, support uh, or extra reassurance that if there is some kind of non-compliance with the settlement agreement, that a court in different jurisdictions will um, help them uh, when they seek relief to get enforcement. Right. And I think a lot of parties have this view of, well, why should we bother going to mediation? They breached this agreement. Why wouldn't they breach a settlement agreement? Um, so why waste the money mediating when we're just going to have litigation at the end anyway? Um, but I think the the enforcement regime under the Singapore Convention does kind of alleviate at least that um, that part of the concern. Yes, yes. And building building off of that, um, if a party does have that type of concern, um, what steps can they take to make sure that their um, their agreements to mediate in the contracts or the eventual mediated settlement agreements um, meet all the criteria for enforcement under the Singapore Convention? Yeah, well, uh, obviously, um, first thing is just need to check that the uh, country where they might wish to seek enforcement or countries. Uh, are actually uh, signatories to the convention. Um, after that, I would have thought it's fairly straightforward. Just make sure that the agreement fits the definition of an international dispute. And uh, most importantly, the agreement is in writing. And I know one uh, question mark that a lot of people have with the the requirements of the convention is that the settlement agreement does need to be signed by the mediator, and some mediators are hesitant to do that. Um, so is there a way that a party can, I guess, ensure that the mediator will be willing to do that, or is there um, some way that they can um, get around a mediator's hesitancy to actually be a, be a well, actually sign the agreement? Yeah, well, the, uh, the requirements uh, for authentication of a mediated settlement, uh, which is very much coming from the arbitration field. Um, you know, it's alien territory for, for most commercial mediators. Uh, it is potentially problematical uh, that they, you know, if there is, if the, if, if the sole requirement is, the, is for the mediated signature to be on the settlement agreement, you know, as, as Peter Phillip points out, you know, um, many mediators conscientiously refuse to sign a settlement agreement. Um, and in the UK and Hong Kong, for example, we, we follow US practice. Uh, we'd agree with Peter on that one. Um, 
in commercial cases, it's the responsibility of the parties' lawyers to draft the final settlement agreement and for the parties or their legal representatives to, to sign it. I mean, we don't sign it um, because we're not party to the agreement. We're, we're just neutrals that facilitate the parties to reach settlement. Uh, so it is possible in the future some medi mediators may refuse to take a case for that because they don't intend to sign or the parties may, come back to your question, may have to accept the risk that the um, settlement agreement may not pass the Article 4 enforcement requirements. Uh, but, but that is, of course, if the only acceptable evidence required is the mediator's signature, um, the Article 4 uh, brackets 1 does allow, it could be, for example, not just the mediator's signature, uh, it could be an attestation by the institution that ministered the mediation. Um, at, here in Hong Kong, Cedar Asia Pacific, I don't think we'd have any difficulty with um, with, with affirming with, uh, a, with, with, with a court that, for example, a mediation took place and was administered by Cedar Asia Pacific. Um, that would be with the permission of both parties, uh, let's say in a two-party case. If both parties said, yes, you can let the um, competent authority uh, know that one, we mediated, and, and two, it was administered by you, then I think uh, that we'd be quite happy to do that. It does, and the, the very last part of the, um, of the article does say, in the absence of any other evidence, uh, you can actually produce other evidence acceptable to the competent authority. So I think it will also be on a case-by-case -case basis, but certainly I don't think anytime soon many commercial mediators are going to be willing to sign a mediation agreement. We do sign the uh, initial agreement to mediate. That's a different thing, where we commit to keeping confidentiality, and all those other important principles. So Danny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about the Singapore Convention, its practical effects, um, the background behind it. I'm sure our listeners are fascinated and all of them I'm sure appreciate what an important event this is for uh, international mediation. So I'm gonna let you go, but thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Adam. Uh, it's uh, been a, a pleasure, and uh, uh, I think it's going to be a very exciting uh, future for you know all of us who are involved in uh, dispute resolution. Thank you very much. Thank you, Denny, and to our listeners. Thank you for listening to Resolutions, and we'll see you next year. <laughs>